Good morning, Northview. And for those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. Today is Palm Sunday, the day commemorated as the day that Jesus rode victoriously into Jerusalem to the cheers and adulation of the crowd. We are going to be sharing in communion this morning, and so I want to encourage you at home to be able to get your supplies and things ready, and uh, when we get to the end of the message, we'll be doing that together. But before we do that, we want to uh, spend some time in worship, and Esther and her team have put that together, and so let's turn that over to them, and we'll worship together, and then we'll come back for the message. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, Northview. And anybody else tuning in with us this morning from the interwebs, we welcome you this morning. We're glad to have you with us. As Steve said, we are celebrating Palm Sunday this morning. And one of my favorite anecdotes as a worship leader comes from uh, the version of the Palm Sunday story out of Luke 19, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem for his triumphant entry. And um, it says that the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voice. And the Pharisees started to rebuke them. And they said, teacher, when they were speaking to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But I love how Jesus answers. He says, I tell you that if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, this is where I like to make it personal. Church, I refuse to be outpraised by a rock. You hear me? Okay, then. So with that in mind, I invite you to join in with us this morning as we just offer God our best praise. Just 
Lord, as we sing this next song, we simply pray, Thy will be done and thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May we lean into you as our rock as we put our faith and our hope in you. church we're going to switch gears on you we invite you at home if you're not standing already we invite you to stand to your feet yes you we see you come on stand to your feet children this is the time for you to get the wiggles out okay so we invite you stand up have some fun as we sing this song just of god reaching our world through this time of revival in our land so pray this song with us
opportunity to join in spirit and in your presence this morning. Thank you for bringing us together. Though we are far away, we are united because of you. So we give you thanks for that. I pray a special anointing upon Pastor Steve as he brings us your word. Anoint him and we ask that you open our hearts, soften our spirits, interact with us as you do so beautifully. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Esther and the team for leading us in worship and we hope that you had a good time celebrating at home. As we mentioned, today is Palm Sunday, and we are a little bit ahead in our uh, study of Mark, and so if you would take your Bibles and open them up to Mark chapter 15, we start a new chapter today, and uh, where we are is the week has passed, Jesus had risen, rode victoriously into Jerusalem, and um, the week has passed, Jesus has been arrested, tried, and falsely convicted. Having condemned him to death, there was one last loophole that they, the Jewish leaders, had to overcome. Due to Roman occupation, they no longer had the right to put anyone to death. And thus they had to hatch a plot to bring Jesus to Pilate under the charge of capital punishment. The main charge being that Jesus claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar. This is amazingly ironic and hypocritical of them for they hated and despised Caesar's rule. This kind of falls under the old any tool and tool shed will work when you're desperate kind of category. Right? And so we pick up the story in Mark chapter 15, verse 1, and it reads as follows. And very early the next morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. And so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, and so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they accuse you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. 
Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and then handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray this morning before we go into the message. Father in heaven, we've come to a critical point in your gospel, a critical place, a place where there's no return, a place that will mean the death of your son. And as we look at these circumstances, as we think them through, Lord, uh, the weight of it weighs on us. And we'll be sharing in communion this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us your counsel this morning, that we would have your heart, that we would understand that this was done for us. Help us in all our circumstances, especially where we find ourselves right now. And Lord, help this passage and the thoughts we go through today keep our eyes focused on you. And we give that to you at great hope and ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, first, a a little background to the story that I think will be helpful. As in most things in the Bible, there's a whole lot more going on than just what you see on the surface. This face-off between Pilate and Jesus has not only political and historical ramifications, but also spiritual ones as well. Following the family bloodlines through Scripture is fascinating. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's the, you know, yeah, those genealogies and so-and-so begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so and, and that kind of stuff. And they contain all those names that you don't know how to pronounce, so a lot of us just skip through them. But if you know the names and you know the family lines, and there's some fascinating stuff that is connected there. And um, they can really deliver up some gems, and this, this is one of them. The story as follows comes to us from the ancient book of Jasher. It's a non-canonical book uh, that is mentioned several times in the Bible. And one of the names we encounter in these genealogies, both in Jasher and in the Bible, is the name Zephel. Okay, very popular name. Anybody named their son that lately? Probably not, right? But we find Zephel mentioned in Genesis 36. His father's name was Eliphaz. His father's name was Esau. Zephel was Esau's grandson. Esau, of course, was Jacob's twin brother. Their father was Isaac, whose father was Abraham. Put it on a slide right here and you can see it. So you have Abraham, Isaac. Then you have the two twins, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau had his son Eliaphas, and then one of his sons was a man named Zephel. Jacob had 12 sons. Uh, We're going to focus this morning on his son, Dan. His son, Dan, had a son named Husham. Eliaphas, by the way, Esau's son, is recognizable because of another son uh, that he had whose name was Amalek. The Amalekites created all kinds of problems for Israel. So we are talking about a man that uh, is pretty well uh, thought of and, and run through in terms of Scripture. But back to the topic at hand. Jacob, as I said, had 12 sons, but Dan is the one who most interests us in this conversation. When Jacob dies, the family comes to the burial plot at Machpelah. Machpelah is the plot that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite, where Sarah and Abraham were buried. Jacob now dies, and the entire clan comes together, both Esau's line and Jacob's line. Esau tries to stop them by claiming that he was the rightful heir to the land. He is still stinging from Jacob, stealing his birthright from him, and now at his brother's funeral, he's pulling a punch card. Dan's son, Husham, became incensed that Esau, his uncle, 
would make such an outrageous claim. The matter is hotly contested, a fight breaks out, and Husham takes a sword and beheads Esau. Off with your head, right? Did his uncle in. Zepho, in that conflict, then flees to Egypt, and from here on out has a grudge feud with Jacob's sons that carries through the rest of his life, and he tries to recruit kings to make war and to wipe out Jacob's clan. To make a long story short, he goes to Egypt, then Carthage, and then to Chittim. In Chittim, due to his exploits, uh, he is received as a great general, and he ends up in Canopia, or Canopia, however you'd say that, on a river that we'd recognize named Tiberus, or Tiber. He's made king, and he consolidates the land of Chittim, and his whole goal is to build the nation so he can attack Israel. The name of Chittim, as we know it, is the land of Italy. The name on the city on the river, Roma, or Rome. And thus, when Pilate is facing Jesus, we once again have the line in the government of Esau facing the line in government of Jacob 2,000 years later. The blood feud continues, and we pick up the action. It says this, Very early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders and teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, made their plans, and so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. This is probably one of the most famous encounters and trials in the history of the world. Pilate wants nothing to do with it. He knows it's rigged, and he knows that it's out of envy that they have brought Jesus to him. He is well aware of their duplicity and their treachery. Pilate has been informed, and he is, knows he's in a political catch-22. Besides, there's another unseen pressure going on at the same time. Matthew informs us and says this, that while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate may be a hardened soldier and a military man, but he also knows his wife's intuition. There is more going on here than he can see. The air is thick. The situation is tense. And then this happens. Pilate asks the question, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Notice the accusation is formed not around blasphemy, which was the charge that Jesus was accused of in the trial with the high priest, but around the claim of kingship. There has been a a clever political flip. The Expositor's Bible Commentary captures this very well. It says this, Apparently, the resolution or decision made by the Sanhedrin in their final early morning meeting was how to actually charge Jesus in front of the civil authorities. They couldn't accuse him of blasphemy. The Roman government would not have considered blasphemy even a punishable crime. That had to do with Jewish law, and this was of little or no concern to the Romans. But high treason, that was another matter. All threats to Caesar's authority were taken seriously. This would be a crime and charge that Pilate could not overlook. The the Bible scholar Mule points out the overpowering irony of this situation. Jesus, who is indeed king of the Jews in a deeply spiritual way, has refused to lead a political uprising. And yet now, condemned for blasphemy by the Jews for his spiritual claims, he's accused by them, also before Pilate, by being precisely what he had disappointed the crowds for failing to be, a political insurgent. But also notice Jesus' consistency here. The one claim that he will answer to, the one charge he won't deny, is that he is the Messiah, a king. For that, He is willing to die. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And so again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But still, Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. The silence of Jesus is deafening. The howling, shrieking pack is blistering Pilate's ears. And yet from Jesus, not a sound. No rebuttal, 
No defense, no plea for mercy. Pilate could sense his majesty, his courage, and his power. There was no cowardice in him, no shirking or shrinking back. Isaiah says of this moment, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The charges of the Jews were totally out of balance and violent. If Shakespeare had been born, obviously he hadn't, Pilate would have been tempted to steal one of his great lines in his rebuttal to the Jewish leaders, methinks the lady doth protest too much. But this is no time to be clever or funny. The stakes are deadly, both for Jesus and for Pilate. Pilate's tenure in Jerusalem has been shaky at best, and he knows there are many channels back to Rome. Like the high priest, he has one ace in his back pocket that he hopes will get he and Jesus out of this mess. And so he pulls it. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. There is very little that we actually know about Barabbas. One speculation is that Pilate picked him because he wasn't a favorite of the Romans or the Jews. He was guilty in both courts of law, and both wanted him done away with. An all-around unsavory character, it would be an easy choice between releasing Jesus or him. And so Pilate made the offer. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. I'm sure Pilate was hoping that they would demonstrate at least a little common sense in this whole affair. They were, after all, politicians like him, And the heart and soul of a politician is to cut a deal in the middle in the name of their own self-interest. In essence, he's saying, hey, fellas, look, let's both win and come out with a, a little something on this on both sides. Let this man go. The shout was deafening. Give us Barabbas. The text tells us that they, the Jewish leaders, have been working the crowd behind the scenes. And so Pilate is stuck. It says this, And what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! This is straight out mob mentality. Pilate himself could be brutal, but he had to keep a riot from breaking out. The irony goes even deeper. So Jesus, who refused to lead an insurrection, is traded for the release of an insurrectionist. And it says this, And Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Matthew's account adds to the intensity and to the drama. It says this, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And in one of the scariest statements made in all of the Bible, the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. They had no idea what they were bringing on themselves through the course of history. So then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I want to um, ask you to begin to um, serve communion uh, in your home and uh, who you're with and um, do that. And uh, even if you're by yourself to serve communion and uh, we'll be taking that together. So go ahead and do that and then we'll keep going here. Flogging was a method uh, that was actually designed to not just break the victim's will, but it was also designed to extract information. And in the process, Jesus is brutally pummeled, beaten beyond recognition. 
Jesus has now become the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And for this morning, as we go into communion, I want to pause there. I want to capture this. I want us to have this picture in our minds as we take communion together, knowing that we're scattered, but we can be together in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can bring conviction. The Holy Spirit can bring value and and bring us together in one heart. And I want us to read this through together. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, just listen. But let's go through Isaiah 53 and read it again. It reads like this. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, and though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many. And he made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 both beautifully and incredibly describes what Jesus was doing, what the plan of God was to take away our sin, your sin, my sin, the sin of the world. And I can't help thinking right now in the place we're at and where our culture's at and our country that this is a phenomenal place for people to relook at the offer that's on the table. To reappreciate what God has done for us. To look through that lens of Isaiah 53 and realize that Jesus actually went through this voluntarily for our sake because he loved us. And the symbols given is what we will go through on Good Friday. But it pictures what Isaiah just said here. It says he was broken, he was bruised for our iniquities. Jesus used this as a symbol at the Last Supper and said, Take this, eat in memory of me. Then he took the cup. And he said, I will never drink of this again until I come back in glory. And it was for this purpose that his blood was shed. He said, drink this in memory of me. We want to invite you to join us for 
our Good Friday celebration obviously will be the way we are in our homes, but um, we've got a beautiful service plan that should be powerful. And we want to invite you back. It'll be Friday at 7 p.m. You can tune in just like you did this morning. And uh, we will walk through the final steps and stages of Jesus' death on the cross. Thank you for joining us this morning. May God's blessing and wisdom be on you and your family. No weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. Because the God I serve knows only how to triumph. My God will never fail. Oh, my God will never fail. I'm going to sing a victory. I'm going to sing a
beautiful Savior, we thank you so much for an opportunity to come together this morning, to acknowledge you as victor, to celebrate the end of the story. And we take just a moment to recognize your sacrifice. Thank you for a moment this morning to share in communion. Lord, you are so beautiful, and we love you so very much, and we thank you for your love and for your amazing grace that you bestow upon your children. We offer this up to you in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And all God's people at home this morning say, amen. Stick around. Steve has some questions and some prayer points to lead us through this morning. So Steve, it's back to you. Thank you, Esther and the team, for leading us in worship. That's just really meaningful. Uh, Each week, what we've been doing uh, that's different when we're gathered together is because you're gathered in your homes, we've given some questions that allow you to dialogue as a family or friends as you're gathered together. And so we have some questions this morning off the message. First question is this. One, have you ever heard of Zepho before? What do you think of the battle between Jacob, Israel, and Esau and the connection to Rome? Number two, what stands out most to you about the trial? As you look at it, as, as you read it, what catches your attention? Number three, What stands out most to you about Pilate? Do you think he was courageous? Do you think he was a chicken? Do you think he, uh, what what would be your take on Pilate? Number four, what do you think Jesus was thinking about as he went through the trial? And number five, would you be willing to suffer for God like that if you had to? We also have some prayer points that uh, we'd ask that you'd pray before uh, you end the morning. The first one is, uh, let's pray for people uh, to reach out and to seek God during this crisis. Uh, My heart's prayer is that people will run into the end of themselves and remember uh, from childhood being in church or messages and actually pray, actually reach out to God and uh, come to know Him or come back in to surrender to Him. Number two, pray for friends and family you know who have been affected by the coronavirus. The circle's getting bigger. More of us have stories. Let's pray for everybody that we know. Number three, pray for us as a church that we'd continue to stay in the word, that we'd continue to stay praying together, that we would continue to fellowship together even though we're separated, and ask for God's blessing and favor on us as we try to keep moving forward. Uh, And number four, pray for God to give us ways to reach out and serve other people during this time. It's not the easiest when you can't actually go out of your house, right? But we've got a lot of electronic ways, and let's ask God to give us wisdom how to connect with people so that we can continue to share with them. These are great prayer requests. Have a great time in your family. Thank you.